welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at OMFIF. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Larissa DeLima and Erica Salinas, uh, who are the authors of a paper on retail CBDC, retail CBDC from vision to design. Larissa, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about your involvement with the paper? Thank you, Lewis, for having us on. So my name is Larissa DeLima. I'm a senior fellow with the Oliver Wyman Forum, which is Oliver Wyman's internal think tank. So I co-lead our Future of Money initiative. I have about a decade experience in advising financial institutions and policymakers, and about half that time has been focused on digital currencies and data competition. Fantastic. Thank you. And Erica? I'm Erika Salinas. I am a blockchain technical lead at Amazon, and I support uh, blockchain and Web3 projects across the enterprise. While I was writing this paper with Larissa, I was actually leading our global digital asset program for our public sector within AWS. Um, as, and as part of that role, I worked with central banks across the globe, um, helping them understand blockchain, digital assets, and really how to leverage the technology for themselves, as well as how to um, regulate a changing financial industry. Before that, it was a mix of engineering, finance, and blockchain. Um, but one area that's always been really important to me is financial inclusion um, and leveraging technology to help achieve that, uh, which is actually what lured me into the blockchain sphere. And so I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Thank you both. Uh, well, it's great to have you guys here today. It's a really interesting topic, uh, retail CBDC issues, something that's a, it's a very dynamic space. It's developing very rapidly all the time. And uh, it's a really excellent paper that you guys have produced on this topic. Um, one of the things that uh, comes out of the paper and, and I don't, you know, this is not a unique insight from you guys, but you've got into a lot of depth on it. Uh, is this idea that there is not one conception of a central bank digital currency that's going to exist, that it, it depends on the strategic aims of the of the central bank. Can you talk about some of the different priorities that you expect central banks to have? And, uh, you know, what, what priorities, you know, how do these vary based on things like income or geography, that sort of thing? Right, I can take that one. To start the things off, in our paper, we don't make any recommendations on whether or not a central bank should adopt a central bank digital currency, but we really highlight the importance of being very clear on what those strategic aims are. Um, because that's the first step to even assess whether or not a central bank digital currency is the right choice to begin with. So not only should central banks be clear on their strategic goals, but also the relative prioritization among these goals, as it's the relative prioritization that can have a really big impact on the design of the system. Generally speaking, the priorities are actually quite similar across central banks. So there's improving monetary policy implementation and financial stability that's core to central bank mandates, and it's being challenged by digitization of money. Next, there's payments efficiency, safety, robustness, and this is really about modernizing and future-proofing the payment system and making sure that it is um, efficient and low-cost to transact both domestically as well as internationally. And finally, there are a set of priorities related to ensuring that the system reflects society's values. So it's making sure that it's accessible to the population as a whole. So financial inclusion is a really, really important goal, not just for emerging markets, but for developed markets as well. 
we have quite um, uh, disappointingly high figures of unbanked, even in developed countries. And then also for some countries, ensuring that their systems are reflected also means ensuring sovereignty over their payment system. So across these shared goals, it's really the relative emphasis across these different goals that matter. Some of them are going to be correlated to income and geography. Uh, for example, payment efficiency, especially uh, across borders, is critical for emerging markets with high degree of remittances. Uh, and unfortunately, it is those countries that need it the most that sometimes have the highest cost of transacting, with retail CBDCs being one part of a much bigger picture and roadmap around cross-country collaboration on cross-border payments. But the relative emphasis doesn't not just need to be correlated with income and geography. Sometimes it's really about the relative rapidity, the relative velocity of decline in usage of cash. Cash is decreasing significantly. Um, that increases the importance of financial inclusion mandate, as well as questions around monetary sovereignty. This uh, COVID accelerated this trend across the board, but it did not do the same across all countries. Like cash usage is something that's really linked to cultural practices, as well as uh, local protections against use of cash. Um, for example, in Sweden, the courts decided against demanding stores accept cash as a form of payment, which really has accelerated the decline of use of cash. So there's a lot um, to discuss on relative prioritization. The last section of our paper, we illustrate how different visions end up impacting different design choices. And we lay out four different archetypes. There's a lot of detail. I would direct people interested in more to that section of our paper. Excellent. Thank you. It's interesting to see that, yeah, there's there is this sort of shared framework of priorities. So although there are these differences uh, a lot of the aims broadly are are the same, but you know the the priority is is different. Um, something that you talk a lot in the paper, a lot something you talk a lot about in the paper is the this framework of trade offs. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the the trade offs that the central banks will have to be looking at? And uh, one of the ones that I thought was quite an interesting one was anonymity versus identity based. Um, it seems like a yeah, there's there's benefits to both, right? Some people do want privacy, but there is obviously uh, a question of oversight and crime prevention. Can you talk a little bit about what trade-offs that, that implies? Yeah, I'll let Erica talk about the question on privacy since I learned a lot from her by working on this paper. Um, but just to lay some of the groundwork on how we build these trade-offs to begin with. Our goal with the paper was to really hone in on key considerations at the intersection of policy and technology. So the trade-offs we highlight, they're by no means comprehensive of all potential trade-offs as much as key trade-offs that really will make a difference in how technology is designed. So there are three of them that we highlight in our paper. The first is around the level of central bank control. So should the underlying system processing transactions, storing data, should that be centralized or should it be distributed? This is about the extent to which central banks wants to fully own and operate the, C the CBDC system or share that with other entities in order to reduce the operational burden or risk or encourage innovation and competition. The second trade-off is about the level of individual autonomy. Does the public prefer to have a system where individuals have more autonomy and choice, but also more risk, 
or do they want many of these issues to be solved by distributors, say recovery of keys? If so, this means delegating some consumer protections to distributors and perhaps ensuring that they're able to provide identity-based services, which has a connection to the third trade-off, which is around privacy, and I'll pass that on to Erica. Sure. Thanks, Larissa. Um, so just before diving into this last trade-off, I just want to make sure that we're clear that none of these are actually trade-offs in the binary. You get one and not the other, right? We do present all of these trade-offs as really along a spectrum along which um, policymakers can decide where they want to exist. Um, so in this last trade-off, trade-off around privacy, um, policymakers have these competing goals, right? They want there are some that want to provide anonymity and really be cash-like and be a, a potentially a cash replacement. Um, but then there are others who are really looking for more efficient distribution of government benefits or um, activities along those lines, as well as uh, being able to reduce illicit activities that might be happening on other um, digital platforms. Um, so as we're looking from a solution perspective, the idea around identity management really impacts the system's ability to provide aspects along each of the along this particular spectrum, providing again from cash-like, um, illicit activity identification, government benefits. And when we talk about government benefits, that's where we use the phrase identity-based services. And that's really just our way of saying it requires us, or I should say the system owner, right? to know who you are in order to provide that service, right? So um, the government needs to know who you are in order to send you your particular benefit, um, social benefit or payment. So in some regions, right, that cultural appeal of cash-like is really strong. Um, but I have to say that in the conversations that we've had with Central Bank, we more commonly hear the desire of easing that provision of public services like emergency aid, right, that came a lot um, during the age of COVID, um, the provision of those social benefits. Um, there's also, we hear the need for consumer protection, right, so to eliminate fraud and theft and cyber threats, right, so um, that can be very difficult to facilitate in cash-like systems, right? You know, you lose your wallet with actual cash in it. It's really hard to figure out those were your dollar bills and get them back, right? So um, what we're seeing is that in countries with national ID systems, there's actually already a foundation to provide these financial, um, these personalized services. And that really kind of eases that side of the spectrum. I also wanted to add here that even though we're talking about linking identity to CBDC ownership, um, there's also a big difference between anonymity and privacy. Those aren't um, necessarily mutually exclusive, right? So even with a system that's able to hold identity, privacy is still possible. Um, and anonymous systems are actually really difficult to implement. So when you look at public blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're actually still only pseudonymous, right? So they're not anonymous. And anon anonymity actually requires extra effort to be able to kind of obfuscate who you are. Um, because even though your real identity isn't linked to your activity, your activity is still all linked together to some digital identity. Um, so when we're talking here about, you know, whether identity is capture, captured, there are a number of privacy preserving techniques, um, technical things like zero knowledge proofs. Um, there's also functional techniques where, you know, identity information is potentially distributed across multiple entities. So no one entity can track um, you in particular. 
Um, and then, of course, there's always regulatory and legal means where you can provide, uh, you know, punishment for unlawful use of the data that might be collected. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, this um, I've been reading recently about the the US eCash Act, which is obviously going the fully cash route. To you know, they can there'll be very little oversight of that, but it's probably going to be capped in terms of the amount. But yeah, it's interesting to see why you mentioned most central banks are looking towards more of a identity based service rather than this this sort of cash direction. Can you talk about what, what are the strategic priorities driving that? I mean, we've talked a little bit about financial inclusion, but if you're prioritizing maximum financial inclusion, do, do you go for a more cash-like system or what's the, what's the trade-off there? Right, so I would add that when you're looking at kind of the spectrum, right, right now we have a majority of central banks looking at CBDC. When you're looking at that spectrum, there's um, seems to be very few countries that are really dealing with this issue of, um, you know, severe reduction in cash, cash usage, um, fear around not having a public way to access, you know, a digital equivalent, the cultural desire to really have where anonymity um, and privacy are really foremost. Um, and Loris, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, what we're really seeing more is, again, like you said, really a focus on financial inclusion, encouraging innovation. Um, there's a lot more room for willingness as a citizenship to give up a little bit of privacy in order to get, you know, more effective um uh, again, identity-based services. And so that's kind of why I think that that might be aligned in that way, but I'm definitely going to let Larissa add her thoughts there. Yeah, I would add that when we talk about identity-based service, it does not mean that all of a sudden policymakers will be become big brother and have access to everything that individuals are doing. When you look at how systems um, operate today, a lot of like payment processors will have information about individuals and that is critical to the elaboration of schemes that allow them to um, ensure certain protections for individuals to reduce level of fraud, um, provide recourse in the case that something happens. Uh, so what we see is the desire to have something that is more akin to digital payment systems than more akin to purely cash where you have anonymity, but which is not to say that all jurors, that is the level of prioritization of privacy relative to other convenience factors really varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So it really is about understanding what the public wants and ensuring that the system that is designed is aligned with the societal values in which it's being developed. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Um, let's go back to the question of financial inclusion, though. I'd like to um, understand a little bit more about if you were a central bank that wants to make your, the top priority of your CBDC to maximize maximize financial inclusion. What are the what are the policy choices? What are the what are the choices that you make in the in the architecture to to achieve that? Um, so I know this is always not a very helpful answer, but it depends, right? Just like there's no one architecture that's going to meet all retail CBDC use cases, um, financial inclusion, the use case, right, is also very, quite varied, right? So 
um, it's actually really critical to understand what the true blockers to financial inclusion are, right? So um, no CBDC is going to help solve if the blocker is cultural or lack of education. Um, having said that, though, like in our paper, we did assume that there were two sets of customers, right? So we tend to separate them into, uh, you know, unbanked and banked. Um, but in a kind of technical context, what that really kind of uh, refers to is more of do they have a digital identity or a national identity or do they not, right? So if they have a national identity, I mentioned that, you know, identity systems before can help ease these types of um, transitions. Um, it's a lot easier for a traditional financial institution to come and onboard and, and you know, serve this customer base. However, in the case if there's no identification, then we do have to make concessions. Um, and one of those concessions is the provision of a non-custodial wallet. And what we mean by that is that the end user will actually fully control the movement of those funds and also be responsible for um, the whether it's a private key or that piece of identi uh, digital identification that would be needed to interact with the system. And this is a little counterintuitive, right, because in that system, you, you can you can't provide all the full protections in case of lost keys or fraud. Um, but we're also proposing them more as a starter wallet, right? So these would have limits to how much could be stored, how much could be spend or spent, right? So um, the idea is really to help have these be a bridge, right? To create kind of that sticky product that gets this end customer base familiar with the idea. Um, you know, it could create a link to other um, mobile money systems that are common and trusted. And really the idea is to then bring them into more of the formal sector where, uh, you know, more innovative, more uh, consumer protections and those types of products can be provided. So we do present kind of this archetype that has to create a mixed solution, one to meet those without identification and those to meet citizens who um, don't have it. Um, so when we're thinking also about what that architecture would look like, there's also the need to really think through the idea of non-traditional players, right? So in many countries, there's a trusted brand with a lot of agents or a very large distribution network that um, the end users really feel comfortable with, right, and want to interact with. And these could be um, uh, telecom providers like we've seen in Impesa in Kenya, but it could be all kinds of providers. And so the idea that you're, the architecture itself might have to be able to integrate with these types of players is, is critical because it's a key piece to adoption to have kind of that that trusted name, especially in areas where the central bank or just financial institutions in general aren't trusted as much, um, which could hinder adoption. Yeah, the adoption question, I think, is going to gather a lot of weight over the next few years, because I, I think, well, the some of the existing CBDCs don't have great adoption statistics. So I, I think uh, it's going to be something that will become more and more important as you know, people solve a lot of the technical challenges and decide what they want, and then nobody uses it anyway. So I want to go back to the talking about trade-offs. I think uh, often in the the tech world, there's this perception that every problem is solved. It's just a question of engineering or sufficient resources being devoted to it until the problem is solved. But that's something that I feel like your paper kind of pushes back on because these are these are policy choices that you have to make. 
and there isn't a magic solution that, that ticks all of these boxes. So can you talk a little bit more about the, those, the trade-off problems? This is just like life in general, right? So you can't have it all. Um, a simple example I like to use um, is username and password, right? So we have so many of them, the passwords get longer, they get more complicated. Um, it would be easier to just type in my name and then my information pops up, or I use my fish's name as my password, or I use the same username and password for everything, right? And we're all trained not to do that. And that's because it's not secure, right? So we have this tension between ease of use and level of security, um, and we often refer to this as friction, right? So the goal is not to eliminate all friction and make it completely easy to use, but to try and match the right amount of friction to a particular level of risk. Um, so in the trade-offs we present in the paper, this that same balance is needed. Um, for these, I like the adage of with great power comes great responsibility, right? So technology can be designed to enable a vast amount of functionality. However, this functionality needs controls, and these controls can be complicated. Um, storing identity means protecting identity. Controlling system operations means actually running system operations, which is actually very difficult for 24 by 7 by 365 critical infrastructure systems. Providing end-user autonomy, right, in these cache-like systems also means passing on those risks to those end-users, right, limiting the ability to provide customer protections. So, you know, when we think about can we solve this through tech technology only, or can we solve this if we have enough brilliant minds in the room to design a system, um, I don't think technology itself can solve it all, but I do think there is some validity in throwing resources at it, essentially, right? So there are mechanisms that can be uh, created to mitigate, you know, any cons of a particular um, choice. And so these resources and mitigation efforts and kind of the balancing effort of what can, can be provided through a technology solution um, can hopefully get you closer to the solution you want. But yes, it's not going to be available solely through a technology solution. Yeah, in a paper that I had co-written with uh, Douglas Elliott last year, it was six policy mistakes to avoid when designing a central bank digital currency. We made this analogy with building a Swiss army knife. It's a really great tool with a lot of flexibility, but its market share is really limited. And because if you know what you want, that's not necessarily the tool that you're going to buy. And I think it connects to what we were talking about with financial inclusion. It, you cannot assume that if if it, it's built, people will come. Um, it's really important to have clear goals and understand how you're going to use the, get to those goals. Technology is a tool and you can save a lot of pain um, in the long run if you're clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve to begin with. What are the use cases that matter the most and looking to ensure that those are achieved. Yeah, it's a very interesting challenge, and it's not something that governments are always particularly good at, I think. I mean, it's maybe a slightly silly or different example, but with the F-35, the one of the issues with the design of that is that it's, there's been a concerted attempt to make it functional in a whole variety of ways. A Swiss army knife, as you say, and that's uh, caused a lot of problems. And they, if, maybe if they designed three different planes, uh, it might have been better, but... um just not not being clear on exactly what it's uh, what it's used for is definitely something that can cause a lot of problems. 
in a design process. So I wonder if central banks are, are going to stumble on that. So central banks don't have to stumble. Um, we are really strong supporters of the role that central banks have within society. They've solved a, a series of problems and um, our monetary system is really based on a cooperation between the public sector and the private sector. And as digitization transforms and brings about innovation, one of the questions that remains is how does this public-private partnership evolve as the world evolves? And this is quite a complex topic, and I think we're just starting to scratch the surface on around how to tackle it. But we really do believe that the private sector can be key collaborators in building a CBDC system. Many are going to have the technology expertise to help with the design, the build, and the management of the currency. Um, private firms are also going to be closer to businesses and consumers and can help really bring about the innovation that comes in response to being close to market signals. In our paper, we call out one critical role in particular um, that we think private policymakers should be attending to because that's really going to have an impact on the battlegrounds for competition. And we call this role the distributor. So this is the firm that is in direct contact with the parts of the system that the central bank manages, and they sit between the central bank and other payment service providers. Now, depending on where central banks lie across those different trade-offs and how they design that system, that role for the distributor, it can be quite expansive or really narrow. So it can be expansive in the sense that it could function like a wholesale processor, like a close collaborator or partner with a central bank in processing transactions, storing data, having the distributed um, central bank digital currency system, or that role can actually be really limited. It could function as a gateway, which would mean just an API that connects the centrally managed system wholly owned by the central bank um, and the private sector that may be innovating on user interfaces on top of that. So the choice of how this role is designed is going to have important consequences to barriers to entry, how easy it is going to be for different players and payment service providers to innovate and deliver systems. It's going to have an impact on the data ecosystem. So that's who has access to what data, what data monetization business models are even allowed or possible as privileged access to data could limit competition. And you really want to get that right balance between privacy and the ability to provide individual services and user protection as Erica talked about um, earlier. And then finally, it has an impact on interoperability. As the system continues to evolve, to what extent will the private sector be incentivized to continue that the system is interoperable across time? So how this impacts competition will really depend on the current context. And again, this is really complex. You may think that one way to encourage innovation would be to give the distributors clear ownership stake, um, that means that they're going to be incentivized to make sure that the system adapts. On the other hand, you can see how that could actually bring about adverse effects because it may enable the distributors to make self-serving challenges, self-serving changes or create frictions for payment service providers. So it's not just designing the role, but it's designing all of the overarching systems of governance and policy that support a healthy um, competition environment.
So it's not an easy topic to tackle, um, but what that means is that central banks need to be really proactive about thinking about it. So we make a few recommendations. So it's building scenarios to anticipate and try to tease out different dynamics, perhaps some economic modeling. It's working closely with the private sector to understand business models, incentives, and user demands, as well as the public sector, as well as the third sector to understand what user wants and understand the desires and needs of people who may not already be represented in the system today. And then finally, you can use the development and deployment phase to experiment with different collaboration models. Excellent. Well, yeah, it's a very it's a very challenging topic, as you say, and I think I guess we need to go back to what you opened with at the start, which is that all of this is only really possible insofar as central banks can really decide on the, the priorities that they want to that they want to highlight. I think we will uh, have to leave it there. It's a fascinating topic. I'm sure we've got much more to say about it. It's a fascinating paper as well. I urge uh, all our listeners to uh, to have a look and, and check that out. Um, I, I certainly learned a lot from it. And yeah, only remains for, for me to thank my two guests, uh, Larissa and Erica. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast. 